Teamwork Arts Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. This is where we try and um, uh, figure out the thoughts behind the actions that animate uh, um, uh, the arts, so to speak. And uh, we've got... Uh, uh, it would be okay to call you legendary Liu Harding. Well, that, that would be flattering. Uh, but it's great to be here. And, uh, thank you. You know, there's, uh, there's of course, uh, uh, the legend of WikiLeaks, the, the Edward Snowden story, etc., which we leave for the trolls to write about in the, uh, uh, under the podcast. But uh, uh, there's a new one, of course, which is the first one to come out uh, about the war in Ukraine. Um, uh, tell us a little about uh, that. Let's, let's begin with that. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I've been covering uh, Ukraine for about 15 years. I was the Guardian's bureau chief in Moscow between 2007 until 2011, when, when I was kind of kicked out by, by Vladimir Putin and his spy service, who didn't like me very much. Yes. Uh, and uh, and um, actually, of course, I was in Delhi. I started my career in Delhi as a foreign correspondent. Then right. I was in Berlin. Uh, yeah, then Moscow. Uh, and then, actually, uh, the last year I've been between London and Kiev, basically reporting uh, on the front line, reporting on the invasion. I was in Kiev on February the 24th last year when, when Russian tanks came, you know, came pushing through towards the capital. Uh, and um, my, my book is, I mean, it's nonfiction. Uh, it's dramatic. It's terrible. Uh, and I try and tell the human story of people caught up in this awful war. Usually people try and suppress the traumatic uh, instances, but you are, of course, uh, doomed to bring them out so that other people can, uh, can live it and learn from it. Um, what's that experience like, Luke? I, I mean, actually, writing the book was was a form of therapy because the way the way it worked, I would spend three or four weeks doing kind of this intense uh, s stuff, writing for my newspaper, The Guardian, traveling around the country. I mean, you know, in, in, India is a huge country, but Ukraine is a pretty big country. It's an absolutely enormous, um, and from one side to the other is more than a thousand kilometers. So I went pretty much everywhere. I talked to lots of people, um, uh, some of them politicians, some of them ministers. Some of them uh, ordinary people who whose lives had been torn up and and you know close close to the front. That there there is battle. There are booms. That there is artillery. There are grad missiles whooshing over your head. Um, and my goal was to pull this all together and and to explain where the war had come from um, and um, what has been happening. You know, um, television has. Uh has made the whole uh, war reporting bit so sexy, hasn't it? I mean, uh, there's the whole thing about uh, bombs going off and people running, taking shelter, etc., etc. Um, you, of course, uh, have lived it. Uh, may I ask you to draw uh, a word picture of what exactly it is like to be out <clears throat> there reporting from the front line? I, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a sort of it's a rolling horror show. What's 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 happening in Ukraine, and it's quite interesting. I mean, in uh, a couple of months ago, I was on the front line um, in the south of the country in a place called Kherson province. It was one of two really big Ukrainian counteroffensives last year, where they recaptured territory. One was in the northeast, one was in the south, um, and the the it's very close. I mean, it's a strange mashup between the First World War. I was with a group of Ukrainian soldiers, and they've dug trenches. There are um, stores for mortars. Uh, th there are bedrooms where people sleep underground. And it looks like you're in some kind of film from long ago. Um, and then you, 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 you talk to some other guys, and they're playing with a drone. Uh, and they have a drone up in the air. And you, from the drone, you can see they're looking at the Russian positions. The Russians are about a mile away, half a mile away, very, very close. Uh, and then there'll be a, a boom. And you look, look on the screen, and you'll see a puff of gray smoke, and they've missed. Uh, and then, you know, I carried on my, with my tour and about 10 minutes later, they, they hit a Russian tank. And then you can see the smoke on the drone and you can see the smoke 
over the horizon over this line of wintry trees. Uh, and it's, it's, it's strange, it's surreal, it's dangerous, it's terrible. But I think what you have to understand is the Ukrainians are fighting for their home, they're fighting for their land, they're fighting for their country, they're fighting for their, for their wives, for their, for their kids. And it's a real uh, struggle for survival against what I would describe as, a, as an imperial Russian project to make them de-exist, to essentially to get rid of Ukraine, Ukrainians and Ukrainians. That's actually what Vladimir Putin wants to do. Sure. Uh, there's also this whole geopolitical thing about where petroleum is becoming almost as important uh, uh, as the missiles flying around. Uh, uh, what are your views on that? The, the, the human aspect, the tragedy aspect, the war aspect of it yeah. um, uh, being uh, uh, enmeshed so uh, 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 inexorably with, a, with something like petroleum, which we take as an everyday thing. And, and that seems to have become a weapon in itself. Well, I mean, <clears throat> Russia, you know, was, I mean, still is a huge exporter of oil and gas. I mean, one of the biggest in the world. Um, and Europe was its main customer. And the Germans, for example, they, they imported 60% of their energy needs from Russia, which, which now, given everything that's happened, looks like a kind of terrible strategic mistake. But one of the consequences of this war is that Europe is kind of weaning itself off Russian energy dependency. Uh, and I think the calculation from, from Putin is that actually... Uh, the Europeans, uh, the UK, the US would, would be very in indignant about the war, but would kind of flake because of rising energy bills. I mean, energy bills have really spiked in, 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 in Europe and elsewhere. Mine has gone up dramatically. But actually, so far, that hasn't happened. This kind of anti-Kremlin coalition has been pretty steadfast. Uh, how do you see the world uh, uh, changing in, in this way? I mean, there's also, ideologically, of course, there's, uh, there's been a lot of the inward-looking uh, uh, aspect that, uh, that the world has been seeing. Uh, and now there's, of course, this whole thing about delinking uh, from Russia and uh, being a little more European in, uh, in character, etc. How, how do you see the world shaping up now? I mean, it's a really good question. Uh, I, I mean, the, the, I don't generally agree with Vladimir Putin, but I do agree that this is sort of a battle for ideas as well as a battle exactly. for, for territory. Yeah, sure. um, and certainly the, the Russian perspective, he, he sees this as a kind of great civilizational struggle uh, where Russia is trying to reclaim territory that is historically Russian. This is what he thinks. I don't agree, but that, that's his view. And he even published an essay about that on the, in the summer of 2021 on the Kremlin website. Uh, and... He thinks that he is fighting against, well, Nazis, uh, against um, the Ukrainian military. Recently, he's been talking, uh, he and the um, Russian Orthodox um, uh, uh, Kirill, you know, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, the Patriarch, have been talking about Satanists. They're fighting decadent Western Satanists in Ukraine. Sure. Uh, and it has, it has almost a kind of medieval flavor to it, like a crusade. Uh, and on, 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 on the other side, I mean, the Ukrainians are fighting for democracy and their right to choose and for self-determination because essentially they, they don't really want to be a Russian colony anymore. They've had that for much of their existence for, for centuries. They want to join the European Union. They want to join the modern world. They see themselves as progressive, as digital, as contemporary. Uh, and the whole Russian project is to crush that. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, sometimes when, you read, when you're reading newspapers or you're, you're reading the narrative, it seems like we're in the middle of a dystopian George Orwell novel uh, where, uh, you know, the, the, the casualty seems to be the people. We seem to have become only numbers in a sense uh, between, uh, uh, you know, the ambitions of a Putin and uh, the energy needs of a Europe. The human tragedy of it is what you actually have seen on ground. I, and, and, yeah, and that's what I try and write about in Invasion. Exactly. I, I mean, I sort of think, uh, I, I mean, there are various stories I, I came across when I was reporting for, for, for The Guardian, which haunt me still. I mean, 
that there are two places in particular which are worth mentioning. One is Mariupol, uh, a, lo a long way away from Jaipur and, and uh, the Literary Festival, but it's a, it's a port uh, on the Black Sea, on the Sea of Azov, uh, where, which Ukraine controlled, uh, you know, Ukrainian territory, uh, where 400,000 people lived. And I, I was there in January of last year, just before the invasion. You know, it's full of restaurants, full of coffee shops. It had a port, um, you know, quite a beautiful city. Um, and in the space of perhaps within about six, seven weeks of my being there, the Russian army, they swept in from Crimea and they encircled it and they shelled it remorselessly. Yeah. Um, tens of thousands of people died. Uh, there are still bodies under the rubble. Entire neighborhoods have been ruined. Um, we've seen nothing like this since the dark days of the Second World War. It's, it's astonishing. And I felt I had to sort of tell that story. Another story I told was um, uh, of Bucha, which is a suburb of Kiev. It's a sort of rather green satellite town about 30 kilometers northwest of Kiev. And when, when the Russian tank columns came rumbling in from Belarus, they got stuck. They wanted to go to Kiev and to get rid of the government, replace it with a pro-Russian administration. And uh, they took it out on the civilian administration. And, and you know, one, one story in particular, I went to see a woman whose nephew was taken away by the Russian military, tortured. She showed me the house where, where she'd peered over the fence, climbing an apple tree and had seen how they broke his arm and were interrogating him. Uh, and they put him on the, their armored personnel carrier and drove off. And they told her, you know, we will bring him back. And so for three weeks, she thought that her, her nephew was still alive. He was called Volodya, 26 years old. Then they chaotically retreated at the end of March last year. And a neighbor came around and said, oh, we found a body. We found a body. And so she took me round the corner, about 400 yards away from where her house was, into an abandoned uh, cottage with daffodils growing in the garden, a little dog kennel, a well, uh, into a cellar. And we went down into the cellar and we found we found a bloody mattress, we found a children's toy, and they'd kept this guy there for four or five days, and one night they'd come down, and they made him kneel, and they shot him in the head. Uh, and they buried, she, she buried him in her garden, because there was nowhere else to do. And what you have to understand is there were 1,600 civilians in the Kiev region executed in the same fashion. There, there are mass graves I've seen in the Northeast in a city called Azum, where forensic scientists after the Russians retreated were, were digging up corpses, and you, you would, you would watch and you would, you would look at the, the body caked in earth and sometimes you would see camouflage trousers and you think, okay, it's a soldier. Sometimes the hands have been tied together. So they, they've been bound, then they've been shot. Sometimes it was a woman. Um, and <clears throat> this is why Ukrainians are fighting and this is why they deserve, are deserving of our sympathy and support because actually what, what is happening in Ukraine is, is genocidal. There's a genocidal aspect to it. Um, and I think it's important, it's important that we, we as sort of thinking people, as feeling people, as literate people, do, do not forget um, and do not lose interest and change channel. What toll does it take on you as a, as, as a person, Luke? One, and uh, two, how, how easy or difficult is it uh, for you to remain objective in the way that you report what you see when you are faced with such human uh, I don't, I don't even have the word for what <clears throat> yeah. I need to use after human. So what, what how does... I, 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 I mean, so, so I, I kind of, you know, I write books, I talk about it, I, I go to literary festivals, and in a way that's quite helpful. I have quite a cool wife. Uh, <laughs> I, have children who are, I have children who are entirely indifferent to what I do and uh, have told me they'll read my books when I'm dead. 
uh, <laughs> and um, so in a way, that's quite that's quite good that you come back and no one goes, "You're a great hero." They go, "Dad, you know, make me a cup of tea." <laughs> uh, and, and so, so I think I think that helps on, on uh, one level. And your second question was, sorry, how difficult or easy is it to remain objective? Well, I mean, the thing is, I, I think, you know, my method is quite empirical. I mean, I just go and talk to people. I don't have an agenda. I'm not an ideologue or, or, or a dogmatist or a polemicist. Uh, I'm just someone who's curious about the world and curious about people. So I'll go and I'll go to a town. I'll, I'll, I'll try and talk to the mayor or and then I'll talk to ordinary people in the square and have conversations and get people to show me stuff. And quite often, some of it's obvious. You know, in these areas of occupation, everything is ruined. That 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 not, there's no gas, there's no electricity, nothing works. You can see for yourself, you know, what happened. And uh, you, you know, people take me around torture chambers and say I was sitting there when they electroshocked me. Uh, and then you write, and I sort of think I don't. I don't think objective is reporting what governments say because all governments, um, including my own government, I mean, you know, you can say kindly they put their best best foot forward, you can say more harshly that they sometimes lie about things. Um, I, I mean, of course, you have to acknowledge what they say, but you have to kind of shape and you have to write what you see. And, and that's what I try and do. Do you have coping mechanisms uh, while you're in the field? <laughs> while <you're... laughs> I, 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 it's funny. I, I actually, I, so when I, after the, the first kind of really hard, hard month after the war in the US, so I, I came back from from Kiev, pretty shattered in March of last year. I mean, I, I, mean, I was going there from December, December 2021 because I was certain that Putin was going to do a large-scale invasion. And my boss said, "Look, we, we think you better phone a counselor." Uh, and uh, so I phoned the counselor, uh, and it was, you know, it was quite well done. It was, it was done on a telephone rather than video because you don't want video. Of course. And she, she basically said, "Look, do you do, do you abuse alcohol?" And I said, I said, no, no, I don't. No, I don't abuse alcohol. Because at that point, I was writing a book. And you sure. can't actually write a book and abuse alcohol. It's, sure. it's incompatible. Uh, and they said, do you have bad dreams and problems sleeping? No, I don't. I was exhausted. I was sleeping through. And um, basically, after about five minutes, she said, you're absolutely fine. Carry on. <laughs> so, 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 oh, actually, the one thing she did say, to be fair, is she, she said, I said, look, you know, when I see videos from, from the front line, when I see scenes of rescuers digging bodies out of rubble, especially children, uh, which happens all the time because the Russians are raining down ballistic missiles on Ukrainian cities. I said, I feel quite, I react quite emotionally, quite quickly. And she said, don't worry, that's entirely normal. Uh, so I was quite reassured by that. Yeah, normalcy, it's... Uh... Just <laughs> the redefinition of normalcy is uh, is, is becoming powerful. No, no, but the point is, that it, you know, you, that you keep your humanity, and that that's yeah. very important. That's very important. How 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 easy or difficult is that to to hang on to your humanity with your fingernails when you when you when you're confronted with barbarism, when you're confronted with uh, with this is a wanton act of uh, of aggression, is it not? Yeah, and I sort of think. Look, is there you, anger in you? I mean, do you... there, there is. There is anger. I mean, I mean, anger insofar. Well, I mean, anger perhaps is, is it sounds as if you you then kind of uh, kind of write in a non rational way. I mean, mm. I try and write sort of calmly and yeah. and and well. But I think the 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 bigger issue is that you know I was as I said I was in Moscow for four years. Uh, I was eventually kicked out for writing about, well, asking, asking rude questions the Kremlin didn't want me to ask, like, how much money does Vladimir Putin have? Yeah. Okay, that was one yeah. question. Uh, another was, is the FSB spy agency, the success of the KGB, 
responsible for the murders of people like Alexander Litvinenko, yeah. a Russian yeah. dissident. I wrote a Absolutely. book about him who was poisoned in 2006 with a, I've actually you know, been drinking tea all the time with a radioactive cup of tea. Yes. Uh, and died in the most horrendous fashion. And so I was kicked out and essentially there was a sort of relatively small group of us saying, look, this regime of Vladimir Putin, for, former KGB officer, is not merely domestically repressive. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, everyone saw the photos of people demonstrating their clubs over the head, they're put in a police, police van, et cetera, et cetera. But also that it's internationally dangerous and adventurous. And that it wants to, in an era when, when in India, for example, and elsewhere, you think of settled borders, basically Putin wants to chew up the borders and recreate a sphere of influence across Central and Eastern Europe, like in Soviet times. And, and for a while, we were dismissed as hysterical, as warmongers, as neocons, as spies, as um, assets, I don't quite know. And, and now, of course, it turns out we were right, <laughs> actually. And I think the whole world pretty much, so apart the, from a few diehards, can see that. So the told you so moment you were right, <laughs> finally. Yeah, in fact, in fact, my wife was saying, uh, am I allowed to swear on your podcast or not? Uh, uh, please do. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, she was saying, you know, my book is called Invasion, but she was saying, oh, you should have called it, I fucking told you so. <laughs> I fucking told you so. <laughs> yeah, remember, journalists, but, but, <laughs> they do mean things. <laughs> but but I, I mean, the thing is, look, you know, to, to be serious, you know, I would not have wished this this kind of awful, terrible conflict to have happened to prove that I was right. But but actually, what we're dealing with is, and it's it's a warning to people everywhere. You know, any country with a leader that stays in power too long is is a delusional dictator who has lost touch with the reality and is living increasingly uh, isolated and in a fantasy world. That's a picture that we all need to be very, very afraid of. Um, what's your process of writing a book, Luke? I mean, how do you start? Where? Uh, what are your questions? Where is the head-scratching moment? Whether you go right, wrong? What's the process? I, I have no time for head-scratching. No? I mean, I mean, <laughs> okay. I mean my, my kind of specialism is to write quickly. Okay. Uh, and so I wrote a book about Donald Trump and Russia called Collusion, mm -hmm. which was the number one New York Times bestseller. And I kind of it was clear other people had the same idea, but I was determined to... We did it in great secrecy and there were editions all over the world. Sure. Uh, and in fact, I came, came last time to JLF to talk about that. Uh, so so I, I, it was, I mean, my, my book started the most obvious place to start, which was on February the 23rd of last year, the eve of invasion when I was in Kiev. I was having um, dinner with a, with a glorious, wonderful Ukrainian writer called Andrei Kurkov, who invited me for borscht, kind of East European soup. Right. Uh, and... Um, we were discussing, I mean, he's, he was writing a novel. He stopped, he's abandoned fiction now. He's just doing nonfiction because of the war. He's published his own diaries of the invasion. And he was showing off these secret police files he had from 100 years before when the Red Army swept into Kiev and started arresting various people. And he'd, he'd be given these files. And there was a real sense that we were on the moment of a sort of inflection point in history. I mean, Olaf Scholz, the German uh, chancellor, calls it a Zeitenwender, a times turn, a transformational point in history. And you could feel it. It was almost palpable. And after this wonderful dinner party, I embraced Andre and I went out into the street, into this historic Kiev city. I looked at the dark velvet sky above me and I took a call from a Ukrainian source of mine who used to work in the foreign ministry. And he just said a few, a few words. He just said, the invasion will begin at 4 a.m. The invasion wow. will begin at 4 a.m. And of course, you go back to your hotel and you can't sleep. And sure enough, about half past four, you hear the, the first sounds of explosions on the on the horizon. Sure. Wow, <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty much your and, and that that's the beginning of the book. So yeah. to answer your question, kind of the, the book writes itself. Actually, it's almost sure. uh, I, it's almost as if there's a kind of auto dictator in my head, which 
uh, you know, make, makes me write it. And, and actually, it, it sort of, it just, it just seems to come together. I don't know. I, 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 I can, I, basically, I can do it. And because I know I can do it, I can do it. That's does that, as does good that, an does explanation. That, does, does that make sense? Abs it, it makes absolute sense. <laughs> uh, when you read the book, it will. So you should. It's called Invasion. Um, also, um, uh, you know, um, investigative journalism uh, is a bit of a walk on the sword's edge, is it not? And yeah. there are still people who want to take it up as a profession. So uh, you being there uh, and, and we being in the, uh, in the world of social media yeah. and listicles, what would be your three to five points uh, that you'd like to tell uh, budding investigative journalists to maybe remember or avoid whatever you want to well well first of all if you're an investigative journalist uh you're, you're not gonna be rich okay it's it's it's, it's i mean well actually no money <laughs> I, I, well i i mean i i i i don't know i mean people i mean the, 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 a few people washington post you know famous journalists have, <laughs> have have had glorious careers off the back of investigative journalism but but I, what's interesting is we, we we all have this impression from from movies that investigative journalists are men that they have sideburns, that they go around knocking on doors, uh, that they have sources they meet in garages. Uh, and actually these days, investigative journalists are women as well. Uh, uh, and they're more likely to be sitting in front of uh, uh, a kind of MacBook Air with a, with a skinny latte doing investigative journalism that, than actually sort of pounding the mean streets of Washington. Uh, and so it's for everybody, uh, first of all. Uh, but secondly, uh, I would say it's, it's good if you understand data if you understand how to search, if you're good at geolocation, because I don't know um, if you've done anything on Bellingcat, this investigative um, outfit full of basically amateur volunteers who use all of the data out there, open source material, and come to some stunning conclusions. I mean, they identified, for example, the Russian people, who, uh, Russian sort of spies who tried to kill the Russian opposition leader, um, Alexei Navalny, you know, tracked their flights, Piece them together, bought their phone records, um, and so, so yeah. Uh, and just the other thing to say is collaboration. I mean, I'm in various secret projects at the moment, which are so secret I I cannot share them with your podcast. I of mean, course. I would love to, but but it's <laughs> For sure. it's it's an amateur against doing that. But but I, I collaborate on a regular basis with journalists from well from India, from from US, from Germany, from from France, and we meet. We're like a little global Leninist organization. And we have these secret <laughs> meetings all around the world, in Munich, in London, um, wherever, where we collaborate on a big story. And, and the, the people we write about obviously don't want us to publish, but they're, they're typically their governments, their oligarchs, and so on. I, I can very safely say that sideburns is lost as investigative journalists. <laughs> I, 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 think, so. <laughs> I, I think with your, with your wonderful um, kind of hirsute features, I think you could absolutely become an investigative journalist immediately. At least on uh, TV. <laughs> so. well, 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 no, we, we would like you in our group if you would join. You know? I would uh, gladly join, except that I have no MacBook Air and no interest in lattes, <laughs> so I, I'm not sure I'd fit no, in. But. But, but the thing is, you're curious about the world. And, yeah, and in a way, that, that's yeah. the other thing you have to bring to it, is a curiosity. A, think, a kind of endless curiosity and a degree of obsessionalism yeah. as well. It's actually as, as simple as that, isn't it? Curiosity about the world. Uh, are we enough? Uh, that is the question that we need to ask ourselves. We're being told increasingly that asking questions is an act of rebellion. But maybe asking questions for yourselves, on yourselves and to yourselves would be a great first step. Luke Harding giving us uh, uh, a few hard facts that you might want to chew on as food for thought. Uh, Luke, it's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> That's the Team of podcast, ladies and gentlemen. You want to know uh, what will come up next? Well, you just have to follow our social media handles. So we can flaunt some numbers as well, which is always lovely. Thank you for watching. This is the Teamwork Arts Podcast.